A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to a new series of A Brush With, the podcast from the art newspaper in which I talk to artists about their influences from writers to musicians, filmmakers and of course other artists and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With Yinka Shonibari, who explores race, class and constructions of cultural identity through sculpture, installation, painting, photography, film and other media. His signature material is Dutch wax fabric, which he's able to endlessly repurpose and contextualise. He chose this material precisely for its complex and loaded history. It was originally inspired by Indonesian batik, mass-produced by the Dutch and then sold to European colonies in West Africa, including Nigeria, where Yinka grew up. Dutch wax fabric eventually became a signifier of independence and culture in Africa and its diaspora. Through references to Western art history, film and literature, Yinka uses this material to playfully, even provocatively, explore the validity of national identities and the cultures that inform them. Yinka was born in 1962 in London to Nigerian parents and moved to Lagos in Nigeria when he was a child. He returned to the UK for his studies, first at the Wimbledon School of Art. At Wimbledon, he came down with transverse myelitis, a disorder caused by inflammation of the spinal cord. The illness resulted in a long-term physical disability, where one side of his body was paralysed. After he'd recovered sufficiently, Yinka did a BA at Bymshaw School of Art in London, graduating in 1989, and then an MA at Goldsmiths. University of London, graduating in 1991. A teacher at Goldsmiths prompted the shift in Yinka's work that resulted in his discovery of the fabric. The tutor asked him why he didn't make authentic African art. Yinka began to consider what authenticity might mean, given that his life had been multicultural. It was in the market in Brixton, one of London's most diverse boroughs, that he discovered the wax fabric. He'd been a painter up to that point, and the earliest manifestations of his use of the textile were in two dimensions. Double Dutch from 1994, features rows of small square canvases wrapped in the wax fabric with different levels of painterly intervention, itself sometimes in highly coloured patterns. The paintings are arranged in a grid on a hot pink background. Straight away, any notion of authenticity is questioned. The grid is a clear reference to minimalist art, but the decorative exuberance and abundance of ornament in the patterns is a subversion of that movement's austere aesthetic. Quickly, Yinka moved into other media. In 1995's How Does a Girl Like You Get to Be a Girl Like You, he cut the fabric into 19th century style dresses, clothing headless mannequins in the fashions that would have been at their height amid the colonial project that brought Yinka's medium into being. The piece was bought by Charles Saatchi and shown in the infamous Sensation exhibition at the Royal Academy in 1997 and Brooklyn Museum in 1998. It's now in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. That work set the path for the sculptural tableau that have been the hallmark of his practice ever since, but he also explored other media with an exhilarating freedom over the following years. He created photographic series, stills from imagined films, exploring major works in art, literary and cinematic history, including Diary of of a Victorian dandy in 1998, based loosely on William Hogarth's 18th century print series The Rake's Progress, and in 2001, the picture of Dorian Gray, based on Oscar Wilde's 19th century novel. From 2004, he began making video installations, including Umbalo in Mascara, a reference to Giuseppe Verdi's 1859 opera, Odile and Odette, focusing on the protagonist of Peter Illich Tchaikovsky's 19th century ballet, Swan Lake, performed by a white and a black dancer. He'd returned to Verdi again in Adio del Passato of 2000. 11, in which he used an aria from La Traviata to tell the story of Lord Nelson and his affair with Emma Hamilton. Yinka had begun to think about Nelson because of what is arguably his best-known work, Nelson's Ship in a Bottle, made for the Contemporary Sculpture Commission for the Empty Plinth in London's Trafalgar Square. Here, on a grand scale, he ingeniously referenced the folk tradition of placing boats in bottles. Nelson's triumphant first ship in Trafalgar, the HMS Victory, given Dutch wax fabric sails, was placed in a vast bottle atop the plinth. Many regard that piece as a summation of Yinka's work to that point, but his sculptural installations involving figures had long been hugely inventive. Several tableaux include references to the colonial nature of space travel as astronauts.
astronauts and aliens will be bedecked in the batik. There are numerous works informed by great paintings from Mr and Mrs Andrews, Gainsborough's famous portrait of comfortable landed gentry, which Inca reimagined with the mischievous title Mr and Mrs Andrews Without Their Heads in 1998, to several paintings by the Rococo master Jean-Honoré Fragonard, including The Swing and his series The Progress of Love. In 2013, he recreated Leonardo's Last Supper in this manner. Gallantry and Criminal Conversation from 2002 satirised 18th century grand tourists' predilection for fornication and exploitation as they travelled across Europe. The scramble for Africa reimagined the fateful Berlin meeting of European powers to divide up the African continent into colonies. More recent works, like his Earth Kids, have addressed the climate catastrophe, while others have directly synthesised Western-style figures with African masks. Indeed, the association between modernism and works from the African continent has been an acute focus in recent years. A series of prints was inspired by Pablo Picasso's collection of objects from Africa, and a new body of work unveiled in London in autumn 2023 focuses on the Dada group's fascination with and appropriation of African ritual performance. Meanwhile, a series of installations creating imagined libraries extravagantly covered in his trademark textile pay tribute to the role of immigration in the defining of nations and their cultural identities. Yink has created a body of work of extraordinary richness from his chosen material. It's prompted a range of honours from honorary degrees to a Turner Prize nomination in 2004 and first an MBE and then a CBE in the British Honours System. MBE and CBE, of course, mean member and commander of the British Empire, an irony not lost on Yinka. With typical playfulness, he's incorporated it into his name. No press release, poster or catalogue now appears without this pointed honorific next to it. He also sometimes adds RA, or Royal Academician, alongside it, another knowing nod to history and its former biases, given that few black artists were made RAs until recently. But to begin our conversation, I wanted to go back to the very beginning. As he pondered how to respond to the idea of an authentic African expression, how much of an epiphany was that first encounter with Dutch wax fabric in Brixton Market? It was more or less immediate because before that... When my tutor had said, you know, I should make authentic African art because I had grown up in Lagos, Nigeria, I wonder what authentic African art was. And in fact, I did go to the Museum of Mankind, which was then based at the back of the Royal Academy. And I didn't find quite what I wanted at the Museum of Mankind. Then I went to Brixton Market and I felt, you know, as soon as I entered the fabric shop, first of all, I identified something of my childhood because people do wear those fabrics in Nigeria. But then, you know, I started a conversation in the shop and they told me the history of the fabrics. I always imagined that the fabrics were authentically African. And then they said that the fabrics are Indonesian-inspired fabrics, uh, then produced by the Dutch and then sold in West Africa. And then I realized that actually authenticity itself can be questioned, you know, what is authentic and what isn't. And that open question led to my use of the fabrics. And it sort of immediately tallied with what you'd been reading at that time, right? So you'd been steeped in Derrida and Foucault and so on, and you were sort of immediately able to identify that that there's that kind of interesting intellectual background that you could bring to the material and, and make it happen in an art space. Absolutely. I mean, I was very interested in the study of science and I was interested in, you know, Roland Barthes. And I was really interested at that point in the politics of representation. You know, what science do we represent ourselves with? And where do those things come from? You know, are we intrinsically something or is that a matter of cultural, you know, development artificially? So we're not innately something. We are beyond what we are represented by, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. And you talked about the way that you use the Dutch wax fabric as creating a kind of third myth. I wonder if you could unpack that a bit for us. Tell us what you mean by the third myth. Well, I mean, I, I think that what I mean by that really is that just more or less what I said that you know, a lot of the things that we believe to be true are fabricated. They're culturally fabricated. They're cultural constructions. And so, you know, we can create a, a mythology about something in the way that the Scottish kilt is actually essentially not Scottish. It was an English invention. 
And that's a form of kind of mythology that Scottish nationalism has been built around this fabric. But actually, this really is an English fabrication. And I love this idea that you said that you like the audience to have a sort of sense of deja vu when they see your work. They kind of understand something and it might be one of multiple references, but there's a kind of deja vu and then it deepens and complicates the more time you spend with the work. Yes, I mean, I like to work with the notion of familiarity in a work of art. So what you see is then defamiliarized in the actual work. But then, you know, you know something of what you've seen. It's not entirely strange to you. But then you just realise that it's been displaced somehow. Did the material itself prompt the diversification of your work? Because initially, of course, you were a painter and you began by stretching the fabric, much like a canvas. But was it the material in a way which led you to expand or did you always intend to work in broader media? I think the material kind of led me to expand Of course, at the time I started painting onto the materials, I had no idea that I would push the idea as far as I've, you know, pushed it now. I was more or less experimenting at that point. And in terms of the kind of process of expanding, was it a series of kind of eureka moments in a way? You know, oh, look, I can apply it to furniture. Oh, it can have a sculptural presence. I can bring it to film. I can use it to paint over materials and so on. Is it sort of a rolling series of kind of epiphanies if you like well i mean i think as an artist you're curious all the time and you're wanting to push the boundaries of what you do besides you don't necessarily want to bore yourself either right you know so it's more exciting to keep trying new things because one of the favorite places i used to i love going to um and still do actually is the victoria and albert museum and then just being in the victorian dress section of the Victoria and Albert Museum. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me that at the time of colonialism in Africa, that's the kind of dresses that, you know, ladies would have worn. And also you sometimes see photographs of ladies in India in the really hot weather wearing those Victorian clothes. And so the first piece I made uh, using Victorian dresses, that was actually the piece that then went into sensation at the Royal Academy. Right. I believe 1997. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And that was a kind of crucial moment where you became allied to, or somewhere around the Young British Artists Movement. It was curious because just before you were at Goldsmiths and so on, there had been the Black Arts Movement. And in a way, would you say you sit between those two movements, if you like? Yes, but you see, I never liked being put in a box You know, I was neither part of the Black Arts Movement or part of the YBA movement. I just always considered myself my own person. And then I just did the kind of art that seemed relevant to my own history, background, context, and so on. And I know that critics or dealers like to have these boxes, but as an artist, I feel like I I stay outside of those. One of the things I wanted to focus on was your environmentalism, because the focus on identity and so on in your work it seems to me clouds a very strident environmentalism in the work, which began as far back as 2008 with the Globe Children. Then there were the Rage of the Ballet Gods, the Earth Kids, the new quilts with endangered species and so on. There's been a consistent thread of environmentalism in your work, hasn't there? I think that environmentalism, it's an existential issue. And so, you know, I've been concerned about this. I mean, way before... 2008, when I started making the works. And I remember going to a symposium at Tate Britain around environmental issues. And I can't remember what year, but it was definitely early 2000s. And so from that point onwards, I've been thinking about it. And I was actually shocked by all of the predictions at that time about global warming. But what's rather surprised me, actually, is the speed in which it's actually happened. I mean, people have been talking about this since the late 60s. And there's been a movement in the United States since the 60s. Mm. And so it's surprising, really, that the entire population kind of carried on as if nothing would happen. And it's really surprising that we carried on that way for so many years. So inevitably, as as an artist and somebody, you know, thinks about issues, some of those concerns started to enter my, my work. 
the presence of the globe in your work, I mentioned the globe kids and so on in, in that last question, but it seems to me that it's grown in all sorts of different ways. There was a point where heads started to be described with globes. And I think that's again, late 2000s, that around that time. What made you do that as opposed to the headless figures that were there before? I think that I wanted to think about humanity as, as a whole. I didn't want to necessarily think specifically in the idea of somebody's race. And it was a kind of universal way of representing both the earth and humanity. And that's why I started using those clubs. And it seems to me that it binds together the kind of identity, geographical, geopolitics, environmentalism and everything. It sort of binds it all together so that in a way you can address so many multiple kind of issues all in one image, if you like. Well, I mean, yes. And also, you know, the earth doesn't necessarily have lines. If you look at the the map of the world, I mean, you're not going to see national boundaries within that. And I think it's something that we ought to start recognising. Uh, if something happens in one part of the world, it's going to affect another part of the world. National boundaries will not save you from catastrophe. And in terms of the sort of visual impact of the works. You've talked about how you you want to deal with issues. You're addressing politics very directly. But there's also something of a celebratory aspect to the work. There's something beautiful about the work. You're unashamed to make very direct aesthetic statements, aren't you? Tell me why that's important. Well, I think it's important to engage an audience. I remember when I was asked to do the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. Although I did want to think about the history of Trafalgar Square and Nelson, I didn't want this to be standing on a soapbox. You know, I had to find something poetic and beautiful to engage the audience, perhaps, and then to start to get them to think about, you know, the history of empire and and all of those important issues. But it had to be done through an engaging vehicle. And of course, there was the intriguing aspect that people, I'm sure, still ask you how you do it. But the great thing about that work is it immediately addressed the kind of colonial aspects of the history relating to Nelson. But also there was a quintessentially Shonibari-esque thing, I think, which is that how does that happen? How did he make that work? Well, I mean, absolutely. And I think that, you know, obviously, I'm not going to tell you how I got the shit into the bottle, <laughs> if that's not. what you're uh, trying to know, but... <laughs> But, um, you know, there's a magical element to art, you know, and I always like to explore that when I make things, you know. I genuinely want to have some kind of engagement or dialogue with the audience and I figure out ways to do that. I'd like to go back to the kind of start of your making, if you like, and how much drawing comes into play. Because I noticed that you said in making these wonderful quilts that you've been making recently, that begins with a kind of computer-generated drawing process. Is drawing ultimately the fundament of everything? Drawing is extremely important. I mean, you know, I went to art school and I was trained initially as a painter and I started at Bamshaw School of Art, very academic kind of training in painting. And everything else I do has drawing at the basis of it. You know, it's always the starting point, the idea uh, starts with line. And yes, so I think it's fundamental. And in terms of the computer-based drawing, is it always line-based or are you able to employ all sorts of different methods? In a way, are you drawing in a kind of traditional way on the computer or are you using multiple technological advances since then to create the image? No, I mean, I draw on a tablet and I draw with a pen on a tablet. So I do it the way you would draw on paper. But it's quicker for me. It makes the colouring in process a lot faster and easier. So, and I make my prints that way as well. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? I can't actually remember if it was uh, Van Gogh or Salvador Dali, but it's between, you know, those two works I really liked when I was young. Right. And was this when you were in Lagos or? That's when I was in Lagos, yes. Right. You know, and I used to look at a lot of art and I liked a lot of kind of Vincent van Gogh's works. I did also see a lot of sort of local art, you know, because when I was young, I used to go to museum workshops in Lagos, actually, at the weekend, just drawing and painting workshops. 
And I know your father was a lawyer. Did he have a kind of interest in art? Was art a presence around you in the in the family home and so on? I mean, we had art in the home. It wasn't disinterested in art, but it just didn't want his children to be artists. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And that time, you know, this was long before all the various, you know, mega money in the art world and all the art fairs and the biennales and so on. It wasn't like that then. So a few artists had money, but not too many. And so I think that I have a better understanding of why my parents didn't want me to be an artist, even though at the time I thought that, and I had been expected to study law in the UK, but I I switched to um, art instead. Because you developed that real interest in art when you were a child, is that right, in sort of staying back at school and working in the art room, basically? Yes, absolutely, yes. You know, and of course in in Lagos, Lagos has um, heavy traffic and... You know, in Nigeria, most middle-class families have drivers, you know, who would pick up the kids from school. And so the driver used to be late because of the traffic and I'd go to the art room and I'd do my art there whilst waiting for the, for the driver. Yeah, That's great. Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Well, it's an artist I've been fond of for a long time is Hogarth hmm. because of his kind of radical politics and the way that he depicted the aristocracy, which I thought was very funny. Yeah, so I've always liked uh, Hogarth. Apparently Hogarth was the first YBA because it was very commercially minded. Right, so, yeah. so, so it said. I mean, obviously he's behind a kind of seminal moment in your career in a way when you made the Diary of Victorian Dandy, which was related to the rates progress. Yes. Tell me how you work with those images because obviously it was a new territory for you to a certain degree as well because you're working with Tableau for photographs, almost like film stills. Yes, I mean, I, I wanted to make... Diary of a Victorian Dandy, and I wanted to make it in a very public way on the London Underground. And there were posters on the London Underground. I mean, that was long before. Now you see a lot of art on the Underground, but this was before that. And I approached uh, INIVA, Institute of International Visual Arts, and Jillian Tardros was the director of INIVA at the time. She's now at Whitechapel Art Gallery. Mm. And she was, um, you know, kind enough to listen to what I had to say and they didn't have the money to do it but she was enthusiastic enough about the project to actually find money to do it and she approved of the proposal and then I was able to actually do that. I remember seeing them at the time and as you say it wasn't often that we would encounter art on the tube so it was there was a strangeness about that experience I'm sure it must have taken a lot of people aback to see these images which didn't seem to relate to any advertising or anything but were just these kind of strange photographs that appeared out of nowhere. There must have been a sort of thrill in seeing this kind of viral thing happening in London. Yes, I mean, I think people didn't know if it was a film. They didn't know if that character actually existed in reality. You know, so it was a lot of fun. And when I made that project, you know, I was in a stately home type place with a number of actors and we just had our photographs taken over a number of days and had a lot of fun doing it. You were working on the subject of Dada in your most recent body of work. One of the things that's sort of underappreciated about Dada is just how much they drew on Africa as a source. Can you explain why you've picked up on that now and, and how you're working with that? The Dada movement was a kind of anti-establishment movement and Dada is a kind of nonsense sound, you know. But Dada also happened at, at the time of the war and the Dada artists were very anti-war and they also were just tired of the kind of power of the kind of war machines and all the destruction and everything. So it was very much against that. And we are in another period where war is also happening again in Ukraine. And so that's why I looked back to history. Okay, what culturally, what were the cultural manifestations of a war period? And so we have the twin issues right now of environmental concerns and war. And so both those issues have actually informed my Dada approach to the exhibition. And how do the works appear? What aspects of the Dada use of of African imagery are you working with? Well, I mean, in the way that Dada artists took a kind of combination of imagery, you know, rather like the Surrealist or, you know, Man Ray and others, Mm. you know, it's a kind of a combination of imagery. You know, the Dada art wasn't a linear a kind of art. And so in the same way, I've combined things that 
possibly are not meant to be combined or don't actually make sense at all. And in some cases they do. And the exhibition is very kind of joyous and deliberately, despite all the chaos and mess, you know, economic problems, despite all of that chaos, I've tried to produce something which, in essence, it's actually dark. It's dark, chaotic. It's all different kinds of works all mixed together. And also an element of, you know, surrealist encounters within the exhibition as well. It's a way, again, of fighting against the rational or the perceptions of the rational, isn't it? That sense in which you can disrupt. And that's something you've done all the way through, but always, as you say, with a sense of joy. Yes, I mean, it's about disruption, but it's not destructive destruction. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. But definitely inspired by Dada, the previous war period and the current war period. You've picked up on Goya in the past, another artist who was able to cut through the appalling atrocities of war in such a powerful way. Why is he such a a sort of landmark figure in your work? Well, Goya was anti-war and he also challenged the establishment. And there was also quite a lot of satire in Goya's work. So he's one of the artists I've always looked to as well. And I have made references to Goya in the past in my work too. Mm. Yeah, and there's that wonderful series where you picked up upon The Sleep of Reason, which is that famous image of perhaps Goya himself asleep with the kind of monsters around him. But you chose to depict that same figure and representing continents with them. So you brought it again into that sort of geopolitical kind of framework. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's the series, uh, The Sleep of Reason Produces Monsters, in which I produced um, the pose in the work, but based on each continent of the world. And so... Uh, a Chinese person would represent another continent, you know, which is not China, and, and so on. So, and then reconstructed that. It was a, a kind of photographic tableau. The 18th century seems of a particular focus for you. There's a work in the new show in relation to Stubbs. You've worked obviously directly from Fragonard. We've mentioned Hogarth. Why is the 18th century an area of such interest to you? You have to remember that in the 18th century, a lot of negative things happened in Africa. And also the enslavement of people was still very much going on in the 18th century. And I think that's why I like Hogarth so much as well, because it's a kind of looking at all of that excess of the 18th century, understanding that there's a dark underbelly uh, to that excess. And the best way to approach that era is to poke fun at it. But that's partly due to my own African heritage and the kind of colonial uh, relationship with Europe and what happened to people when they got taken to the Americas. And we know how horrific that was. But then, you know, it was a a so-called period of European enlightenment, which was quite unenlightened. That was history. But, you know, we can actually look back and uh, um, see what was not quite right. Which contemporary artist do you most admire? Well, I would probably say somebody like David Hammonds mm. definitely would be up there. And, of course, Joseph Boyce, without a doubt. You know, and then, of course, I admire people like you know, uh, Cindy Sherman, also very much what she did with identity politics mm. in her work. Nancy Sparrow, Leon Golub, you know. I tend to like artists who have a, a sort of edge to their work. I don't know how to describe that. Oh, I think that's absolutely true, but it's interesting because, in a way, there is so much shared political territory with somebody like Golub. And Sparrow, yeah. for instance. But yeah. you've talked about using the decorative almost as a Trojan horse to get some of those similar ideas discussed. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, I find ways to kind of engage people, but without negating the poetic in the work of art, because the aesthetic and the poetic are very essential things to me. And I don't see them as vulgar at all. I know that in England, such things might be considered vulgar, but I, I don't consider it vulgar. I wanted to pick up on an intriguing comment you made about the artist Daniel Buren. Of course, your work is very different to him. But in a way, his stripes and your Dutch wax fabric, there's a kinship in that kind of use and reuse and reimagining of that material in, in new environments and installations and so on. Yes, I mean, Daniel Buren, somebody I noticed for many years, and I like that kind of obsessiveness of the work. And so it might have been an inspiration somewhere there. But it's kind of interesting to think about Daniel Buren and Yayo Kusama, who is also another artist I I admire. 
And that's a, the sort of different ends of the severe and the exuberant. I mean, Yayoi's work is extraordinarily exuberant. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, but it's also very political and very feminist in its um, origins. We're in your studio now. What do you have around you in the studio? What do you have pinned to the studio wall as reference points? Well, as it happens, actually, I have another studio, which is in my house. You know, I have a studio in my back garden. This is more like the office studio. Right. <laughs> but but uh, I have another studio where I kind of really work. And in my studio at home, I've probably got images of Basquiat. I've got some surrealist images, you know, and then I've got Francis Bacon images. I like King Francis Bacon. Mm. And then just simple still lifes from some of the impressionists as well so i'm very eclectic in the things that kind of inspire me which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently i'd say without a doubt take modern i like the fact that the exhibitions change and then i go to vna barbican i think the position of the state modern is very convenient for me so it's not too far from me so i can get there it must have been so gratifying to see your work, the British Library, there at Tate Modern. It's a major part of their displays. Tell me about that work. It seems to be a really significant work in your history, if you like. Yes, I mean, the, the British Library began when uh, there was a lot of conversation around Brexit, actually, as it happens. And the Brighton Festival invited me to do a work. And so there was so much Brexit talk, which I felt was very nationalistic, and not particularly helpful. And then I thought, actually, many British people have families who came from elsewhere. You know, several famous artists, Tracy Emin, you know, so many. And then I decided that, you know, I wanted to actually dedicate a library to second and third generation children of immigrants. And so that's how I created the British Library. And it sort of produced a whole group of libraries as it were there's the american library for instance and the african library was that was that always the intention or was it just the success of the british library that prompted the others if you like i mean in my experience past work produces future work you know and i think that's always been the case for me you know i do a work and it leads me into thinking about other things i might do or how am i built on something i'd previously done so the library series which is continuing and i'm working on another library now so it's now become a kind of body of work, I guess you could say. And it's a sort of an immersive experience. It's it's a wonderful experience of colour apart from anything else. And again, it's that bringing you in with this seductive presence. And then once you're in, grabbing hold of you with a kind of darker or more complex subject matter. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, it's important to, again, you know, do something immersive that the audience can actually engage with. And then if they want to see or look further, they can then do that. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 250 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the most recent additions to the app are the Museum of Fine Arts Boston and the Samuel Dorsky Museum of Art, part of the State University of New York at New Paltz. Among the other guides on Bloomberg Connects are several museums and galleries in the UK and the US, where Yinka Shonabari has shown his work, from the Brooklyn Museum in New York to Camden Arts Centre in London and the Yorkshire Sculpture Park. If you download the app, you'll find that among much else, the guide to the Yorkshire Sculpture Park has audio and video content on its exhibition programme, including the Austrian artist Irvin Worms' first UK museum exhibition, which continues until April 2024. It also has a feature in which you can explore all of the outdoor sculptures on display in the 500-acre park and gather artists' perspectives on the open-air works. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store, and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Instagram. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? Probably the moon landings. Ah. I mean, I've made things related to science fiction as well because I'm, mm. you know, I'm interested in that. Yeah, so it would be the moon landings because I saw that on television along with everybody else and the excitement of everybody else. 
when you were making work, did you think of that idea of involving astronauts and aliens in your work quite early on? Because it's, it's this wonderful thing that happens that in a way, yes, there's things like hunters and there's, you know, references to British literature and all sorts of other things. And then there's this sort of separate body of work, which is the astronauts and the, and the aliens. And it sort of, it seems to me that's one of the most joyous aspects of the work in a way. Yes, I mean, I've always been fascinated by, you know, the boundaries that humans have been able to cross and the possibilities. But I've also seen the flip side of that because the kind of colonial adventures also came from that instinct. So there's a kind of contradiction there, mm. which I've always sort of enjoyed. But also it's the complexity of that, that, yes, you want to go to new frontiers, but then on whose terms do you do that? And morally should you actually be doing that? So it's a conflict to have within myself too. In one of those pieces, the flag that's planted by the astronaut looks like a flag to sort of suburbia. I wondered if you might unpack that for me a bit. Yes, I mean, I thought that was a kind of slightly humorous aspect of that because we replicate, you know, wherever we go, we just simply replicate who we are in that space. So actually breaking into new frontiers we kind of just bring all of our problems with us, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so we bring suburbia yes. wherever we wherever we plant our flag. Yes, you know, and I just thought that was kind of humorous because when I found that fabric and I thought that would be, you know, a great one for the flag. Um, I want to talk to you about another experience that it seems to me was really important, which was your residency in Senegal. I wondered if that, in a way, gave you the inspiration for this extraordinary project you've now embarked on which is to provide residencies in in nigeria at the gas foundation yes no absolutely i mean i did residencies in senegal and also in stockholm as well i did something called the aspies in stockholm and i very much enjoyed particularly when i was in senegal you know going to another place uh, meeting other artists and it was um, a very nice experience for me you know i'm not sure what the exact impact on my work was but it just made me look at everything with fresh eyes. So, yes, that was a memorable experience for me. And you'd not long before that begun working with the Dutch wax fabric, is that right? Absolutely, yes. I, but it was good to see what other African artists were doing at the time as well. But it wasn't just about the work, it was, that, it was a whole experience, a whole life-changing kind of experience. So that profound effect made me want to do something later on. But I also made my first film in Stockholm, and that was on my residency. Mm. And that was the film that was in my Turner Prize nomination when I was nominated. So that pushed me to look at my work from another angle. And then when I acquired my studio here, I created a space called uh, Guest Projects. And I had a space for experimentation, a space where artists could fail. And I'd give the space to artists for one month. I had a proposal box outside of the space. And artists would drop proposals in there. And then I'd select you know, a few projects a year. And you can still see it outside the studio today. It's still there. Yes. And then I did that for about 11 years. And then I decided to do an international residency. You know, I was born in London. I grew up in Nigeria. And most people, you know, they don't know much about Nigeria. And I believe that cultural exchange is very important. And I think when you get to know people better, you just have a better sense of who people are. And because I've lived in the UK for many years, you know, I can't say I fully understand England, but I understand a lot of it. And so likewise, I wanted people to understand my origins. And so I acquired a 54-acre farm in Nigeria, and in the city, you know, so we built a house for artists. And then in the countryside, we created a farm. And the farm is about two hours out of the, the city. And the idea is that artists can do residences in Lagos. And if they want to work quietly, they can go to the farm and do residences there. And there are artists who make work around environmental issues, and um, there's a lot of land there and they can do something that's connected to the land if they want or to food because you know, we practice agriculture there. Mm -hmm. And I started that project, I think about two years ago, and it's called Gas Foundation, Guest Artist Space Foundation. And so it's run by a London registered charity, which is called uh, Yinka Shonberry Foundation. 
and sustainability is built in all the way through in the way that the buildings are built and so on. So, so yes. it's all developed with that kind of ecological profile, if you like. Absolutely, yes. You know, the farmhouse on the farm was designed by a Nigerian architect called Papa Omotayo. And so he excavated the soil and made 40,000 bricks. And so those bricks were then used to build the house. And then the Lagos building, that was designed by a British Ghanaian architect called L.C. Owusu. That's a concrete building, but it has a longer life. It's durable because it's in the city and you can imagine the kind of petrol and the noise. Mm. So we needed a more resilient building there. But that building is also being built in such a way that it requires less air conditioning and uh, self-cooling in the way that it's been built. Which writers or poets do you return to? Well, I mean, I I don't know about return to them, but I think the writer that was kind of really quite significant in my development was uh, Franz Fanon Mm. as well. You know, that was uh, obviously he dealt with all kind of post-colonial psychological disturbance of particularly black men, mm. you know, so, and then of course there are people like, you know, Edward Said, Omi Baba, you know, those kinds of writers. And then, you know, I mean, I tend not to read a lot of poetry, but I like the work of Maya Angelou, mm. you know, yeah, um, wonderful. a very kind of uh, powerful, effective writer. I know you said that you've returned to Gulliver's Travels uh, yes. and Jonathan Swift. Again, there's a sort of kinship there. It's that sort of satire, but with a hard-hitting agenda. Yes, no, absolutely. And Gulliver's Travels, even though it might be considered a child's book, it's actually a very complex novel, you know, dealing with how we treat strangers, for example, and the whole issue of immigration. That book actually holds a lot, a lot in it. Would you describe yourself as a satirist? Well, I could possibly in the tradition of Hogarth, maybe. Right. In a way, I guess you, you might say that a lot of political art might be in that tradition. But I also allow space for that kind of poetic. And um, so my, I don't think that my art is sort of instrumental in that way. You did a series based upon Oscar Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray. That's correct. It was partly also inspired by film. I wondered if it was, was it both book and film or was there one dominant kind of influence on that body of work? Um, I would say both book and film, you know, and the stills that I kind of used in that. I guess you can't say that the work is inspired by politics, but it's not politics, you know, it's, um, but it does have something to do with it. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary that you have these black and white images right up until that final image of you as Dorian Gray with this kind of rotting skin. Yes, yes. And that seems to me to be a quite a political gesture that that last image was in colour. Yes, but and then in the film, that was also down in the film as well. That one image was actually in colour in the film. Which music or other audio do you listen to whilst working? Actually, at the moment, because the music that's actually exploded out of Nigeria right now is Afrobeat. Yeah. So obviously, somebody of an older generation, you know, I have cousins who listen to that, you know, nieces that are much younger than me. So I listen to some of what they listen to. I mean, there are people like, you know, Ashake, Wizkid, Burna Boy. Those are kind of the, a lot of the new things coming out of Nigeria, which is kind of very interesting to me. And you, you say you, you have a drawing studio at home. Do you listen to music there more than here? Or is there, is there a sort of different kind of mode that you're in in the different studios in terms yeah, of music? Yeah, no, I think here it's mostly for meetings and, um, and I do most of my design meetings here because I have a team I work with. Hmm. And then there's another studio downstairs where a lot of things are being made, hmm. you know, so I can see what the progress is down there. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of fabricators down there. Obviously, opera is a tremendously important medium for you. You've you've made yeah. several works in response to it. What was it about opera that caught you? Because it's it's prompted a whole body of work. Well, I think opera is about the whole kind of complete artwork. And um, there's a German expression for for that. But um, Gesamtkunstwerk. <laughs> yes, yes, no, exactly. So you've got drama, you've got set design, you've got fashion you've got music, you've got the orchestra. So it's a whole thing. And so 
it's the biggest kind of art, you know, because it's got everything in it. So I'm always kind of fascinated by opera, yeah. And that's that extraordinary. You mentioned the film that you made in Stockholm. Yes. Ballo di Mascara. Yes. Tell me more about that because it's, you showed it in your Turner Prize exhibition, as you say. Yes. It seemed to me an extraordinary thing that it was originally made with the help of a Swedish television company that's who were originally going to show a documentary about its making, but they ended up actually showing the work. So yes, they were convinced yes. by the work to show it on national television, which it seems to me an extraordinary feat. Yes. Well, that was the time, I think, of the war in Iraq. And likewise, you know, historically, uh, Gustav III of Sweden was actually fighting wars in Russia while his people were kind of starving. And so I looked for historical parallels. And that's how I ended up with Verdi. And Verdi's Ballet Mascara. And so that's how that film started. And again, you used the Traviata and Verdi's music in Adio del Passato, which is another opera-related piece. Yes. This time you brought it back to Nelson and, and the story of Nelson and Emma Hamilton and so on. Tell us more about that. Well, so I did uh, Nelson's Ship in a Bottle. But of course, you know, to do any kind of work, I have to do a lot of research. And I was finding out a lot of stuff about Nelson that I didn't know about while I was doing the research. And then after I did the exhibition, I had all this kind of research material left. And I thought, actually, this could evolve into another work. And that's how that work came about. Which other media influenced your work? Well, I mean, I actually go to Sadler's Wells quite a bit. And I love watching contemporary dance. Mm. You know, and I love Pina Bausch and all of that. And I think that I would say contemporary dance, even though I don't do it myself, but I like to watch a lot of it. Yeah, me too. And the work of Dylan Odette, yeah. of course, is the most sort of obvious sort of choreographed work in your canon. Tell us about that. That's a, it's a really fascinating thing because you're taking two figures from Swan Lake, recontextualising them, and there's this balance between a black dancer and a white dancer and the idea of the meanings of those dances. Yes, I mean, you know, like everybody else, I know Swan Lake and I was invited by the Royal Opera House to do... It was meant to be a film at the intermission of the opera because they used to, I don't know if they still do that, screen the opera in Trafalgar Square and also in Covent Garden outside, you know, in the mm. summer. But then they'd have a short film in the break. Then I was invited to do something for that. And then I thought about, you know, oh, of course, you know, it's actually, it's an opera house, but actually the National Ballet is there as well. And then I did uh, Odile and Odette based on Swan Lake. The idea of a public art, it seems to me, is really important to you. And, and, and you again, in a very dance-related body of work, it seems to me, the wind sculptures, yes. which seem to me like bodies moving. In a way, that's a sort of trompe l'oeil, the creation of a kind of solid but apparently moving object. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so again, after doing the Ship in a Bottle, I worked on the sails, and then I looked at the movement of the sails and the idea of trying to form wind through fabric. And then I thought, actually, they're very interesting in of themselves. And so could I actually work further with this idea of wind and the idea of, you know, migration and the sea and, the, you know, uh, the migration of people through the motion of wind. And then that's how the wind sculptures evolved. And then I was invited to do a show at Yorkshire Sculpture Park. And so the wind sculptures were actually launched at uh, Yorkshire Sculpture Park. And, you know, it, it's the idea of making a hard material feel very light, a hard and heavy, you know, fiberglass or bronze, you know, because I'm now making them in bronze. And one of them actually should be at Regent's Park, during freeze, uh, you know, um, freeze sculpture. I will have one of the uh, wind sculptures there. Right. I want to ask about film as well. Obviously, you made films. I was intrigued to hear that you were profoundly influenced by Peter Greenaway. Oh, um, yes. And that yes, kind of yes. extraordinary, almost excessive vision that he had. Tell us more. Yes. Yes, I love the cook, the thief, his wife and... Uh, and her lover, and her yeah, lover. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love that film. I love the excess of it. I love the fact that it just shows absolute degeneracy you know people <laughs> um yeah so that film uh, inspired me yes the sort of degeneracy and excess it seems to me that your work goes there to an extent at certain points you pull back from it at times but there's a sort of naughtiness there as well a kind of it's perverse joy sometimes in the work yes i mean in, in a way i actually i forgot to mention him earlier but that's why i really love the work of paul mccarthy 
Right. You know, because Paul McCarthy kind of just pushes that <laughs> outrageous kind of excess. And yes, yeah, so, and I think Paul McCarthy is like, Hogarth times hundred. But I suppose the sort of work that I'm thinking of that most tallies with that kind of thing is gallantry and criminal conversation, which is the piece you showed in documentary, Okwe and Wazel's great documentary of 2002, where there's a sense in which there's a sort of rivaled kind of humour at play. Yes, no, absolutely. And gallantry and criminal conversation is that kind of work in which, you know, the kind of excesses of the aristocracy is just pushed to its vulgar limit. It is indeed. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? I mean, one thing I do have to do daily, and, you know, just because I'm a wheelchair user and my disability, so I do have to exercise, even if it means pushing all my meetings to the afternoon. You know, it's essential because it actually sets me off for the day. So that's a ritual that I have to do. If you could live with just one work of art, what would it be? I think probably Delacroix, like liberty leading the people. Uh-huh. Because, you know, it's very much about a lot of the things I believe in, liberty, freedom and all those things. That's interesting, especially in the context of reading Edward Said and Orientalism and so on. He's <laughs> yes. such a complex figure, Dolacqua. Yes, yeah. And lastly, what is art for? I mean, art is not utilitarian in that sense. So I think art is a means of survival. Human beings have to express themselves, you know, and I think it's the outlet that you've got. And, you know, when dictators lock you up, the first thing they try and stop is your expression. And so it's as essential as living. And I think it's a fundamental human means of expression since the cave drawings. And that's what I think art is for. It's a way to to feel alive, I think. Yinka, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Yinka Shonabari, CBE, RA, Free the Wind, the Spirit and the Sun is at Stephen Friedman Gallery in London from the 6th of October until the 11th of November. Yinka Shonabari, CBE, Ritual Ecstasy of the Modern is at Christaire Roberts Gallery in London from the 22nd of September to the 4th of November. Yinka's new public work, Hibiscus Rising, an outdoor sculpture commissioned by the David Oluwali Memorial Association, will be unveiled in Air Park as part of Leeds 2023, the city's landmark year of culture on the 20th. 5th of November. Between April and September 2024, Yinka will have a solo exhibition at the Serpentine in London, and he will also participate in Nigeria's pavilion at the 60th International Venice Biennale from April 2024. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening, and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows, and the key issues every week. And please subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. We're on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. Production, editing, and sound design on a brush with by David Clack, and the producer is Lewis Jebb. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. A big thank you to Yinka Shonabari. We'll see you next week for a brush with Claudette Johnson. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.